All right, let's take out our Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 20. This time we're looking at just one command. Chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. I've been thinking about law a lot lately because of a lot of things that are going on in our nation. From some protesters to defund police departments and things like that, which seem awful foolish to me. And I keep coming back to the same thing. Law is there to protect. When you get right down to the nuts and bolts, why do we have laws? Laws are put there to protect. It's always to protect. And so to find the way to protect the most people in the best way, is that's the whole purpose of it. And that's what I find when we come to this study of the law here is God's giving His law to the nation of Israel and He's going to start with the Ten Commandments and then He's going to add a lot more to that. It's going to cover a lot more ground. But His purpose is to protect. Part of it was to protect Israel specifically. To keep them unique until the coming of the Messiah when He would come to be over them. Part of it is to protect the whole world, all of us. Because as we see that we don't line up when we measure ourselves by the law, then it brings us to that point of salvation where we recognize that we need Christ in His love to lift us up. We need the cross. And so we get protected from an eternal judgment that takes place at the hand of God. It's also there to protect us just in and of our daily lives. The things that we look at in, that are contained within this law are things that are very damaging, very hurtful to ourselves and to other people. So by God making this list of rules, putting together these Ten Commandments that reflect His nature and His character, He's doing it to watch out for us. Adultery does destroy a lot of things. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It, it, it damages the community. It, 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 does, it damages you and me. A lot of devastation comes from this sin. God put these laws in place to protect us from all those things, to protect the marriage, to protect the family, to, to protect you yourself, to protect even the act of sex itself. And so when you look at it as God, as He reaches out to protect us through this law, the Bible makes no bones about it. God doesn't hesitate. He doesn't stutter. He's very clear on His teaching regarding sexuality. Biblical sexuality is very simple. It started out in the garden as one man and one woman committed for life, and that's it. Anything that goes on outside of that is a, is a perversion of what God created or He intended it to be. And so there it is. That's how God created it to be. That's what He put in our owner's manual, which is the Bible, to tell us how to live. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, "...let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous." And the difference between those two words is, is fairly simple. Sexually immoral deals with an unmarried person having sex with some other unmarried person. But when it crosses the lines of marriage, you've crossed one more boundary. And so then you're dealing with one or both of the people involved in the activity as being married, but this is outside of those marriage boundaries. So Hebrews says marriage bed is to be undefiled. And it's honorable, but the sexually immoral and adulterous God will judge. In Genesis chapter 39, we find the story of Joseph. And we see within his story, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. 
Notice his response then. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And so he withstood the temptation. But notice how Joseph looks at what he was being tempted to do and he recognizes it for what it is. He says this would be a horrendous sin. He recognized that it would be a sin against Potiphar, who was his master, because he would be violating him by taking his wife. It would actually be a sin even though she was asking for it. It would actually be a violation against her for him to do that too. He's not doing her any favors by doing what she wants to do there. Be bringing her into the same kind of guilt as well, even though she's willingly stepping into it. And then also he says, and this is a great sin against God. God takes this kind of sin very personally because He compares our relationship to Him in that covenant relationship we have with Him with the covenant relationships that we have with one another through marriage. Even Jesus, up and when you get into Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that it's not just about the actual sin itself, but also even what we think about. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when you get to the New Testament in the time of grace, does grace mean that the, that the commands that we violated are now less important? No, actually, he even heightens it. It's not just about what you did. It's about what you thought. In fact, we see the same kind of progression as we go through these Ten Commandments. You notice in the last five commandments, which are toward other people, notice that it starts with actions, and then it's going to go toward words, which is lying and bearing false witness, and then to thoughts, which is coveting. And so there's even a progression within the Ten Commandments that take us from our actions to our words, right down to our very thought life. Where is your mind? Where are your thoughts? And so the command that God gave to the Israelites then many, many years ago, you shall not commit adultery, is just as viable, just as important for us today as it was back then. But what is God doing with it? What is God doing with this command? What is He protecting? Well, the first thing I think was to start with the most obvious is that God is protecting marriage. When God made Adam and Eve, He made them to be husband and wife. And that they would be involved in this covenant relationship with one another. And he made a very simple formula. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God, we see God creating Adam and Eve for the purpose of being together and that from them would come forth children. The two shall become one flesh. You'll leave your father and mother, separate from them, unite yourself to your wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's going to take place in several different ways if you think about it. Obviously, there's a oneness that He wants within that relationship. A husband and a wife come together and there is a oneness. There's a unity. They're now distinct from any, every other couple, every other individual in the, in the rest of the world is outside of this unity. It's those two coming together as a unity. Now, that is experienced partially within sexuality as two people come together in a very physical way. It's a beautiful picture and an and a, a experience of the oneness that God intended us to participate in, not just in a unity of souls, a unity of bodies as well. 
And then it's even represented, there's a pregnancy and a childbirth, because then when that child comes out, what is that child? That child is 27 chromosomes from the mother and 27 chromosomes from the father, and so he has 54 chromosomes. Those two are now seen in this one flesh, this one individual. And so God shows it in so many different ways. It's just, it's an incredible, it's an awesome deal. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, now remember, this is after he had spent six days of creating everything, and he says, after every day, it is good. He looks at what he made, it is good. He takes a look at what he made, it is good. He takes a look at what he's made, it is good. Every day. And then he gets it all made, and then for the first time, God says, it's not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. And in verse 21 and following, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be one man coming together with one woman. And the two of them become one. And that's that's a picture of the Godhead. Because remember what Jesus would say later, that I and the Father are one. There's a unity within the Godhead. And God wants that unity to be experienced within our marriage relationships. That's why this is such a big deal. And the way God created it to be and designed it to be for, is for these two to come together and to become one. To share an intimacy together that is not shared with anybody else. And that's why adultery destroys that. Because it takes the intimacy that you have with this one person as you, body and, and spirit, come together as one. And it violates that trust. It breaks faith. And it tries to experience that same type of a activity somewhere else. So much so that, you know, Jesus acknowledged that it is the, kind of the one loophole to, for divorce. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what's Jesus recognizing? Jesus is recognizing that adultery destroys marriage. Why did God give us the command to protect marriage? But not only is it to protect marriage, the next thing it protects, obviously, is the family. God is protecting family through this. Because you think of what happens within a family when this becomes an experience. It's horrible. It's devastating. You know, if I think about what I do to my wife, if I get involved in another relationship like that, what does it do to her? I remember one time Lisa said to me, I don't remember what the comment was, but it was something like, do you ever want somebody else or think about anybody else or anything like that? You know, And I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I just want to invite destruction into my life. And she kind of laughed, and, and, but we thought about it for a minute. And I said, you know what, that's exactly what you'd be inviting. Think of all the things you'd be inviting into your life. Think of all the tears that are going to be shed when this hits home. Think of the yelling that's going to take place. Think of the disunity within the home. Even if you try to work through it, even if you decide we're going to work through this, we're going to keep things together, we're going to move ahead, we're going to rebuild, and and admirable to you if you do, even if you do that, can you imagine the 
emptiness and the loneliness that you will experience during that process. Why? Because the greatest trust that we can put in one another has been violated. How do you trust after that? It takes time to rebuild trust. How do you rebuild trust? This happened before. Why is it not going to happen again? Is that other person really gone? How could you do this to me? How could you do this to the kids? When I think of if I was to be unfaithful to my wife, what that would do to her, I just about to get choked up just thinking about it. It's horrible. But then I take it to the next level and I think, well, what am I doing to my children? What kind of a relational issues are my kids going to have with me after that, with my wife after that? What kind of disappointment? And especially dealing with our faith. Everything that we seem to live for was false. We couldn't trust Him in that. Can I trust Him in this? In dealing with issues of my faith? You know, when you think about it, when kids are growing up, so much of their stability is found within that family, within, within the relationship and within the stability of their parents and their, and their relationship. And, and what are we doing to our kids when we start to tear that thing down? How do our kids, how are they going to feel comfortable in their relationships when they look toward marriage if the ones that they've seen crumble? You know, when I think about my relationship with my kids, if I was unfaithful with their mother... I can't imagine what it would do to my kids. And my kids are all out of the house. They're all married themselves. But I can't imagine the betrayal that they would feel from me going through that. When you stop and think about all the heartache that is involved with adulterous relationships, it's horrible. And you know what? God wants to protect you from that. But then not only that, what about the community? Not only does it impact our marriage between the two people, it impacts our family between us and the kids, it also impacts the community as a whole. Because the community itself begins to struggle with the issue and the community itself begins to lower its standards in this area. Uh, Israel, they experienced it in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 9. And the prophet Jeremiah is using the adultery here in more of a spiritual sense. They were committing idolatry. But, uh, but it's still a breaking of faith within the relationship. And what I want us to notice from these passages is that this breaking of faith became dominant within the community at large. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Because she took, the she is the nation of Israel here, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. So the adultery with stone and tree is obviously setting up altars, worshiping other gods. And so that's the kind of adultery it is. It's adultery between Israel and God. But notice the way he says it. He says she took her whoredom, her unfaithfulness to God, lightly. And you know what? The Bible uses very blunt terms to describe this kind of stuff. And you want to know why? Because it's ugly. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't gloss it over with nicer terms. It doesn't go politically correct on us. It just uses the ugly terms of what it is to describe what it is so that we recognize how hideous it is. And so God is saying, look at the whole community of Israel takes it lightly. The whole nation of Israel, this became a small thing to them. It became uh, no big deal. Now I want you to stop and think with me, where is our society in this? When I was a kid, it was a pretty shameful thing to live together before you're married. When you look at it now, I don't even know if it's even more common to do that before marriage. Our guard is dropping. We're taking these things lighter and lighter every day. The TV shows that you watch and that your children watch uh, act like everybody's doing it and it's just fine. It's no big deal. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I noticed in the generation before me that the adults 
Often, even if they were having trouble within their marriage relationships, they would all, often it was the case where they were sticking together. Sometimes they even said they were, but they were staying together for the children. When the children are all up and out and on their own and doing okay, then we'll part peace as peaceably as we can and move our separate ways. Now, there is another option. Let's work on the marriage. Get the marriage good. Get the marriage right. But, you know, that was the staying. When I was, when I was a little kid, the generation older than me, that was their, hey, if we're, if we're just going to stay together for the kids, that's what we're going to do. But we're going to, do you know what my generation says? You know what the best thing for the kids is? If I'm happy. If I'm happy, their home will be happier. So, you see what we're doing? We're dropping. It's becoming no big deal. We're lessening everything. And that's, that's the pattern that it goes. And so adultery, if I participate in adultery, what damage am I doing to my marriage? Obviously, I'm destroying it. What damage am I doing to my family? I'm wreaking havoc upon my family. I'm going to put my family through so many things if I go down that path. What impact am I having even at the community level if I participate in that? You see, that's exactly what God wants to protect you from. Well, not only is He protecting the community, He's also protecting sex itself. He is protecting. You realize, you know, a lot of times people get the idea, you know, the Bible gives a bunch of rules about sex, so it must not be very good. Actually, it's awesome. It's wonderful. You realize that the sex was created by God. It's not something that just kind of had to come with creation. Uh, well, I guess I've got to have kids somehow, so I guess we'll give them this. This was designed by God to be something that made the two come together as one physically to mirror what He's doing within them relationally within with each other. God wants you to experience it. In fact, if you think about it, He creates Adam and Eve and He creates them in a way that that's how they will reproduce. And then He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. Go out and fill up the earth with kids. So when you think about that, God has actually commanded them to be involved in sexual relationship with one another. It's something that He wants you to experience, but He wants you to experience it within the right parameters. Within those parameters, it's beautiful and it's awesome. Without those parameters, there's guilt and there's perversion and there's, it's just not good. So God in doing this is not only protecting us, He's also protecting His creation of sex in the first place. You realize in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, He's writing to a group of people. Since it's in Corinth, he's not writing to the Jewish nation. right? He's writing to a church that is mixed of Jews and Gentiles. But those Gentiles that would have been saved from that, they were saved out of paganism. In paganism, there was all kinds of sexual immorality that was even part of their worship services as they worshipped other gods. It was a horrible background. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them and he's giving them instruction on sexuality. And he says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see what the Apostle Paul tells him in there? He says sexual morality is a big thing. It's a horrible thing. You need to be married. You need 
your husband. You need your wife. And then within that realm, within that marriage, you have this wonderful experience. In fact, he even tells them that the wife is in control of her own body, but the man, the, the husband is in control of his own body, but the wife. And so he's actually commanding them to satisfy one another's needs in this, in this area. He's actually commanding them to be not less engaged in sexual activity, but more as a couple. He's telling them to experience it. In fact, he tells them, look, don't even cut one another off unless it's kind of like fasting. You know, sometimes you might cut yourself off from food for a while just to focus on prayer. He says, if the two of you are in agreement that you want to focus on prayer, you got something specific you're praying about or something like that, you want to fast from sex in this way, then go ahead. He says, but as soon as that fast is over, then enjoy each other again so Satan doesn't get an upper hand here. You see what God is doing is He's pr- protecting the institution of that. That activity is designed to be an expression of what we experience together in a relationship of unity and oneness. And God doesn't want you to lose that. Do you know what? If you go outside of the bounds of marriage for that, it's a cheap imitation. That's what it is. Within the marriage relationship, there's no guilt. There's only enjoyment. Outside of it, there's guilt. Outside of it, there's damage and destruction. Inside of it, it's wonderful. And so God is protecting even... Even sex from one, he gives this command not to commit adultery. And then finally, God's protecting you. He's protecting you because of the damage. He doesn't want to see you go through the heartache of a destroyed marriage. He doesn't want to see you go through the heartache of watching what you're doing to your family. He doesn't want to see you go through the shame that you're going to experience within the community. He doesn't want to see you get a cheap imitation instead of what he really designed for you within that sexual experience. Even the polls and stuff like that all back it up. I remember it's been a while, but I remember I wrote, read a book around the turn of the century that was called Five Lies of the Century. And one of the lies that it dealt with is that uh, the sexual revolution led to greater fulfillment. We found that the most satisfied people on the face of the earth sexually were people that were faithfully married to one person. You know what? It works. The things that God is trying to protect us from, if we do things God's way, it works. Because that's how it's designed to work. If we go violate that, then we're putting ourselves in jeopardy. In fact, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does, it destroys himself. And that's what God is trying to protect us from, from our own selves. Well, I'd like to kind of close. It's going to take a little bit of a moment to close because we're going to read Proverbs all of chapter 5. We find a mom and a dad warning their son about how they should live. And they deal with this area of adultery all through chapter 5 and in part of chapter 6. And so they teach their son on sexuality. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And so he's recognizing that his son is going to come across some very alluring temptations in dealing with this area of sexuality. He says it looks sweet as honey to begin with. In the end, it's bitter as wormwood. In other words, what it promises, it does not deliver. So he's warning him to be careful. Verse 5, Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. 
Notice the perspective. When we're tempted toward this kind of a sin, you know what we're doing? We're focused all at the moment and where it's a very self-centered focus. She does not ponder the paths of life. In other words, she's not thinking th- things through. She's not looking down the road. She's not recognizing that there's a morality that she'd be, she's violating. She's not concerned with that. The only thing that she's concerned about is the pleasure at the moment. He says she's not thinking of to the heartache that's coming down the road, to the damage that's coming down the road. And so it's very, um, what I just called it short-sighted. Well, then he goes on to the next section in verse 7. And he tells his son about the regret that he's going to face if he goes the wrong direction. He says, and now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. That's a great tip for handling temptation. Just stay, stay as far away from that temptation as you can so you're not even thinking about it. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Strangers are going to have what would have been yours. You know, I can think of a whole host of country songs that say exactly what this Proverbs does. You know, what's the, what's the one about that? Who's that? Who's that man living my life? What's it say? It talks about who's that, who's that living in my house? Um, Driving my car, I think it was. I think he even owns his dog in the backyard. His kids living in his home. He's like, who's that man living my life? That's exactly what this Proverbs is saying. This Proverbs is saying, look, you follow that path and everything you've been building in your home, your family, you're going to lose it. Somebody else will take your place in that home. How many people today are running their own home with their income and another home with part of their income? Why? Because of this very thing. I think over 50% of divorces point to adultery as the cause for him. Regret. On the positive side, he says, now this is what you get if you stay at home. Here's, And we find contentment. And we find enjoyment. We find satisfaction. He says, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Flowing water. Nice, clear, cool, crisp. Experience that. If you want to experience that kind of refreshment in your life, in your marriage, in your family... Then drink water from your own sister. Running water from your own well. He says, should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He says, enjoy her. Be intoxicated by what you can have together with her. That intimacy. It's awesome. It's amazing. And compare it to what he just talked about. The dripping honey at the beginning. Total bitterness in the end. The the life of regrets. You know, my dad's... Well, I told you that recently even, I think. My dad's sex talk to me was very short. It was like one sentence. He just looked at me and he said, Greg, for 20 minutes of fun, you can ruin your whole life. What was he saying? If you just act in the moment, you're going to regret. You're going to regret. Well, that's what Solomon is doing here with his son. He's saying, look, you're going to have a life of regrets if you go the wrong direction. Otherwise, what can you have? 
you can have a life of complete satisfaction, enjoyment in that part of your relationship with one another. And then he brings us to the very last part. He points out the judgment of God. He says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. And in other words, the Lord's watching everything that we're doing. And, and we're going to stand before a judgment before Him. And we're going to be held accountable. And then it also recognizes that there's a trap to sin. In verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he's held fast in the cords of his sin. How many people have we seen, maybe we've even experienced ourselves, that you start participating in a sin and pretty much you feel like you can't stop? It's because sin brings you into bondage. Sin ensnares you. And then lastly, he points to the effects of sin. He says he dies for a lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. God is protecting you from all of that by this one simple command.